0: Hi there, it's Olivia. If you enjoy the conversations we have on this show, then there's another podcast you should check out. It's called The Next Big Idea, and it's produced in partnership with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Each week, host Rufus Griscom invites you to listen in on a conversation that might just change the way you see the world. You'll get life lessons from award-winning scientists, best-selling authors, inventors, and historians. Folks like Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Gretchen Rubin. Recent episodes have explored how you can have meaningful conversations in a transactional world, all the ways AI is poised to transform education, creativity, and healthcare, and why failure is, paradoxically, the key to success. Follow the next big idea wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Naila Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Fried, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'm
1: Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is BioEats World, where we talk about all the ways our ability to engineer biology and re-engineer healthcare is transforming the future.
0: We've talked a lot on the show about all the innovation and technology changing care delivery for clinicians and patients. But what's happening behind the scenes in healthcare, in billing, in administration, and in infrastructure?
1: In this episode we're talking about the mountains of work and paperwork in healthcare from reimbursement claims to patient registration to call centers scheduling appointments and much more and the enormous costs that inefficiency and waste in these areas adds to the healthcare system. In this conversation, former Senator Bill Frist, a heart and lung transplant surgeon, healthcare advisor, and Senate majority leader from 2003 to 2007, Malinka Walaliad, CEO and co-founder of Alpha Health, a tech company that automates healthcare revenue cycle management, and A16Z general partner, Julie Yu, Dive with me into how innovation happens in healthcare in the back office behind those doors and how new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning can help automate away some of that waste and inefficiency, cut costs out of the system and allow humans to do the really important things. Where are you talking about this labor? In what areas? So there's billing. Where else? Like, let's map it out.
2: Billing is the first thing that people certainly do think about. But if you think about it from the patient perspective, let's say I book an appointment with a doctor, and typically that doctor encounter might last 15 minutes, right? It's a very short sort of transactional moment in time. But think about all the things that happen before you show up at that appointment. You're probably getting multiple calls. You're getting forms via email, maybe text message. There's entire hordes of call centers you know, whose sole purpose in life is to collect your demographic information. Even if I've been a patient of this doctor for many, many years, we're submitting the same information over and over again. A lot of it certainly relates to insurance and making sure that the most up-to-date information about your coverage is collected because that will obviously have an impact on whether or not that doctor gets paid and how quickly. So all of that you know, leads up to The doctor's visit, and you might actually spend more time with the administrators in that upfront data collection process than you do with your clinician. And then once you leave, there's also a whole set of administrative tasks that happen after the fact, right? To get a survey information to ensure that your care plan is being followed up on. Maybe you have a prescription that you need to get, and there's all the ordering and payment process around that for a given encounter that a patient has with a physician you know, the vast majority of your time spent actually interacting with that provider organization might be spent on actually administrative things, and really only a very tiny portion is spent on the actual patient care.
3: So out of the three point five to roughly $4 trillion of healthcare spend, probably $500 billion of it is spent on insurance-related activities. A very large fraction of that is wasted spend.
1: What do you mean by wasted exactly? You know, that, it sounds like such a strong word. What's the difference between wasted and inefficient here?
4: The definition of waste is kind of a wastebasket term until you define it, but I look at waste as unnecessary spending, spending that with better systems, better technology, better machine learning, you could get the same output that you could with more efficiency, more productivity than without. When people start really big picture in terms of looking at overall spending in our healthcare system, about 25% is in the administrative arena. The administrative waste is probably two to three times what it is in the care coordination arena.
1: Oh wow, that's a big factor.
4: William Schrank did a study of administrative waste last year. They estimated the total waste at 20, 25% of all our national health expenditures. And they broke it down into six capacities, which were administrative waste, where care coordination was pricing failure, was overtreatment, fraud and abuse. And the administrative waste category, which includes the back office, uh, insurance and billing, but also before you see the physician, the administrative complexity was about 7% of all spending, about $300 billion of total health spending. And that's 30% more than all the care coordination part of it.
3: A very interesting thing about the revenue cycle, one of the big areas of spend is within revenue cycle, there's like 10 to 15 activities in the revenue cycle actually End to end. And it's when I say it starts earlier, it starts all the way from patient registration. That's like actually the very beginning of it. And then the very end of it is actually not just the conversion into a code, but something called cash posting, where actually comparing what you got paid for with what you were supposed to get paid. So much of the work is to correct things that should have been done properly the first time around. So there's actually an enormous, enormous amount that is in that. You should just follow what happens after a patient gets treated. To identify these massive, massive buckets of lots of unnecessary spend. It's sort
2: of a vicious cycle where because the processes are, you know, either broken or set up in such a way that do require multiple, you know, sort of mundane tasks to be performed, that that results in the need to kind of throw bodies at the problem with human labor. And then, you know, that just kind of exacerbates the whole equation. So by way of example, the way that providers determine how to bill, how to submit a claim, and ultimately what the policies are that surround that is based on a combination of the codes, but also medical policies that, by the way, are typically published in a PDF document buried many clicks deep on a health plan website. It just inherently requires and adds not only labor on the provider side of that equation, there's labor on the health plan side of that equation, right? Because there ultimately needs to be a utilization management team that's overseeing that process. There is this sort of balance between you know, how much do you just trust the doctor to do the right thing versus how much do we micromanage the process? That's also another place where the administrative overhead of implementing what I'm sure many physicians perceive as micromanagement you know to make sure that they only do certain procedures or only prescribe certain you know, care plans if they have checked the box. And if another human on the payer side of the equation is reviewing exactly what that is, and then, you know, only under that circumstance would you actually get reimbursed. So I think that's also another huge tension point by virtue of the fact that we do have this third-party payer system. That's another reason why you see, you know, so much human labor involved on both the payer and the provider side of this equation.
1: So is it really about labor or is it also about process here? You know, what are the other factors that are contributing to this sort of bloated situation?
4: I've practiced medicine for 20 years and I want to cut, I want to fix. But David Cutler's done a study on this about six or seven years ago that for every physician or dentist out there, there's seven other non medical personnel.
1: Oh, wow. A whole constellation.
4: I've got seven people doing administrative stuff. The return on investment for back office automation is typically reduction of labor or the labor force or the number of employees or staff that one has hired. So even if the ROI is compelling overall, the fact that you're laying off people makes it challenging for people who are changing systems. The real answer is technology.
1: So what you're saying is it's not just the number of people involved in the amount of labor, it's the distribution of labor and who's doing what and who is being used the right way.
4: It's both. When you have a healthcare system, it's you know three and a half trillion dollars and you have individual families with bills twenty and thirty thousand dollars a year and insurance costing twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, in addition to that anything that you can do to take out cost and using all the data, putting all the studies together, the waste part of that three and a half trillion dollars, the unnecessary spending is about 7%, a huge burden that gets transferred out to everybody. So just being able to lower those costs has huge implications, I think, for the individual family and especially vulnerable populations who may not have the access because of the cost barrier that's out there.
1: So let's get into how technology is actually improving that in practice, how the technology speeds up the system, and what the relationship between human and technology there is or should be.
3: A lot of back office activities is workflows and dashboards and tools to make existing staff faster at what they do, just augmenting them. The next wave of activity is not just augmenting staff, but actually performing tasks autonomously directly. Not automating jobs. It's automating tasks. One of the ways we work is we can actually observe how staff are doing their work today, figure out the best ways of doing that work, add additional intelligence to make sure that work is done correctly, and then autonomously do it ourselves. If you can just, instead of continuously training staff and get some of that work done autonomously, where that intelligence is built in, that can actually eliminate some of the actual causes of some of that spend. We often like to make the analogy to self-driving cars, right? Getting training data for a self-driving car is observing how humans drive cars today, right? Having a bunch of sensors that capture how humans respond to things in the road. Once you get enough data, you can build an algorithm that can drive a car by itself. That's essentially how we do it.
2: I keep coming back to call centers because my prior life, I sort of like lived in the call center and we were trying to build um, you know, software solutions that would enable you know, this sort of leveling up of how those folks spent their time. But you know, you would literally have patients calling in in tears, uh, having just been diagnosed with some disease that they don't understand. They don't, you know, know what needs to happen next. And they were simply told, they were handed a piece of paper with a phone number on it and said, call this number to schedule your appointments. There is so much rote mundane activity that the call center agent has to do manually. They're flipping between different screens. They're literally flipping through binders. You know, they spend all their time doing that. Instead of saying, you know, how do you feel? Can we help you arrange for your travel to come to our clinic. You know, are there other family members that we should get them into the communication flow? You know, things that are just more humane. And so I think that's a higher order opportunity set here is how do we enable the humans to actually engage with patients with empathy versus, you know, focusing on these rote mundane tasks that take away entirely from that overall experience.
4: This category of empathy, knowing your stakeholders, better consumer engagement, it really strikes upon what I think is going to be one of the big levers Vanguard put out a study not too long ago that of 100 patient complaints, only four were related to the clinical care. 96 of these complaints are all of the friction, the inconvenience, the lack of consistency, the fact that there's so many payers. So anything that looks at that friction around healthcare from the perspective of the patient, I think it's going to be one of the great levers in the application to this back office.
3: I love that there's data around it because you can see this anecdotally. If you go to the Yelp page for any clinic or hospital, and if you look at the negative reviews, I wanna bet like 80, 90% of them are not about the clinical experience they had, but it is about the financial experience that they had. There's been other studies that show that roughly 80% of medical bills contain errors. Wow. Yes, medical bills are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the US. And look, a large part of that is healthcare is just expensive, and that's a very large problem to solve. But another part of that is that they contain errors because this work is done in the back office by folks that often don't have the time to spend on them. And it causes a terrible, terrible financial experience.
1: As you're talking about the friction that we need to eliminate, I'm also thinking about the friction of introducing new tools, right? Even if the end goal is a much more efficient process, what is the right way to set those tools up for success from the beginning when integrating them into an incredibly complicated system that is quite resistant to change?
3: Oftentimes, when software is introduced, the company introducing it doesn't have a human in the loop to solve for the outliers or things like that. And that is left for the end customer, the health system to do. And that just creates more work for them often. I think if you can build a solution with a human in the loop on your side, you can completely take away that function from the health system so that what you deliver to the customer is not some, you know, workflow tool or whatever. It's like actual value, like an end result that is delivered.
2: There's software and there's tools that you can insert into, you know, both clinical and administrative workflows that generally speaking require the human to change their behavior, right? They have to click another button or use another drop-down menu. And a lot of that is actually pushed onto the physician. It's kind of crazy to think that to solve revenue cycle problems, we actually ask doctors to use three more clicks in their EHR or spend, you know, x number of minutes more, you know, going through these crazy drop-down menus to just make sure that it's coded correctly. That problem space is what is so ripe for automation. The physician should be able to document their cases in the way they want to document it. Imagine that they just use their own natural language, just the same way that all of us, you know, we just all want to write the way that we naturally think. And artificial intelligence should be what interprets that information and then, again, automates the process by which that becomes a claim, sort of parses out, translates the necessary components of that behind the scenes into the actual claim versus relying on the human to do that. A lot of that should become invisible if we are able to fulfill on that promise of true AI and ML.
4: I think what we aim for, and this really comes from my years, taking care of thousands and thousands of patients is to make it a forgettable experience.
1: (laughs) I love that.
4: Getting the care that you need at a point in time. That forgettable experience has got to be the end game. Part of the resistance to change is that it's easier, especially when you're looking to that next quarterly report or that next year it's just easier not to drop out of those legacy systems. From the big system standpoint, they don't need a bunch of little point solutions. They really need a more end-to-end platform coming in before they're going to invest. The ROI needs to be spelled out, and uh, the ROI in both the tangibles and the intangibles the patient convenience, the time that is saved. If you are a physician in an office And you're going to be working 14 or 15 hours a day or a dentist or a nurse practitioner in an office or that back office, those other seven people, that's throughout the whole system. What can you do to take those away and still get the same outcomes, the same process and outcome measures that you know are necessary to give the very best care to that patient?
1: I'm thinking about the incredible amount of disruption that we've seen because of coronavirus and the pandemic. And on the clinical side, it's sort of incredibly obvious why now is the right moment for a lot of things to shift and the ground is ripe for it. But I'm wondering what the answer is in the sort of back office admin side. Like why now? Is it because it's just gotten so bad? Healthcare is sort of like infamous for like, there's been a lot of good tools for a long time, but Getting them adopted is the thing. What's different about today in the back office version of this problem?
4: The pandemic accelerated the world of virtual care. It's getting the care to people who need it in real time without the barriers of scheduling and waiting in line and who's in network, who's out network, all that. The culture has changed for the first time. It's changed for the provider who recognizes that virtual care More seamless care, care with lower barriers can be given. And if you're doing virtual care real time at the moment it's needed and you have a back office, which has a lot of people, a lot of paper, a lot of faxes, confusing quality measures, the demand by the consumer, if they can get the care instantaneously, they need to get through all this billing and insurance stuff instantaneously as well. Everything that we talked about is sort of, this is
2: assuming that the vast majority of revenue that flows through healthcare today, or at least up until very recently, was fee-for-service reimbursed revenue. And, you know, all the pain and administrative overhead and waste that we're talking about, like, really just kind of pertains to that model. We're now in a place where two things are happening. One is we are moving towards value-based care, and now all of a sudden you have to care about quality. And that's a much more complex landscape than just having to understand billing codes. And if we can't even get it right for, you know, just, again, quote unquote, straightforward fee-for-service billing, you know, how are we going to contemplate getting it right for a much more complex landscape in value-based care? So I think that's a big, you know, one component of the why now. The other is just patient responsibility, One of the major, you know, tailwinds uh, in recent years has been that more of the financial responsibility of the healthcare dollar has been pushed on us as consumers, largely through high deductible health plans on the employer side. And so all of a sudden, you know, the messiness that we've been describing to some degree has been hidden from the consumer because it does pertain mainly to the interface between payers and providers. It's going to be even worse when we are the payer, where we are the ones who are actually responsible for making that payment and understanding what our options are, why we're getting billed certain things. So I think there's going to be additional exposure points due to those two factors that are, again, only going to exacerbate the basic problems, but also require new capabilities that don't even exist today.
4: Just move towards value-based care, where you have to pay attention to quality, to outcomes, and by taking this friction out of the back office, you improve patient satisfaction, a satisfied patient is part of outcomes. And to get rid of that friction, it's not the healthcare that they complain about. It's the non-medical aspects, which are barriers, which can be taken down by technology.
3: A lot is this mindset towards having flexible costs. Right now, so much of their costs are fixed or pseudo fixed because they have these giant institutions and it creates really bad incentives, financial incentives, where the goal is, hey, we're spending all this money. We got to like, make sure we get as much revenue as possible by pulling beds, things like that. If you were able to, you know, cloudify your back office operations, you can just use what you need, that will make you overall a lot more efficient and also incentivize you the right way, right? Don't be like airlines where, you know, they have these like giant leases on planes. They can't really do very much. They have these huge costs. If you can convert more of your back office operation through technology into, you know, a cloudified system where you could only use what you need, similar to what the technology industry did, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, right? Instead of buying giant mainframes, they now have cloud systems, they only use what they need and they can adjust a lot more appropriately. In the past, health system revenue has basically just gone one direction, just increased. And when you have a black swan event like what just happened, it shows actually that may not always be the case. And if we get more events like this, you have to be prepared.
1: You mentioned, Senator Frist, the forgettable experience, right, being the goal here, which I love. What are the other ways that we evaluate what the right tools to introduce into the system are? Or in other words, you know, how we don't mess things up more? Are there other criteria that we should be thinking about?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, like so many other solutions that you know, we try to inject into the healthcare system, there has to be a clear ROI. And I think there's the clinical ROI, which is, you know, how does this not, you know, introduce harm into the patient encounter. There's operational ROI, you know, are you actually making me more efficient? But I think most importantly is there a financial ROI that I can actually tie to either greater revenue opportunity for myself or higher margin. That's where I think revenue cycle to me is one of the, you know, let's call it the lowest hanging fruit areas and opportunities to apply AI and ML because the ROI, the financial ROI is so clear, right? For every extra Dollar that can be collected more efficiently, more rapidly for the provider. That's a win for the provider, and by the way, also for us as patients, because you know there's the, the solvency sort of aspect of we want to make sure that our providers are focused on us and not worried about whether or not they're going to get paid. And then you know because the cost equation is so non-controversial, you know I don't think there's a single person in our country who would say that revenue cycle is a place where we need to add more labor and go about it that way. I think that makes it a really clean. Place to inject, you know, technology in the way that we're talking about and to use that as a criteria for evaluation.
4: In the macro sense, you can compare us to other countries. In past studies, numerous studies, you look at our administrative costs are twice what it is for your average OECD country. One study said that 38% of the difference in overall healthcare spending in Canada, very similar terms of the care delivered in the US, is due to administrative spending. It's the back office which has the most friction in the system. And that can be measured in terms of outcomes, in terms of the processes built around quality and actually outcomes of the clinical care given. Cost to collect is
3: basically the total spend by a health system or provider organization to collect the revenue that is due to them, right? So it is all of the revenue cycle activities and all these other associated things. And cost to collect, when you're talking about tens of billions of dollars, are very, very, very large numbers. It's often nice to have a yin-yang kind of thing, because if you focus too much on cost to collect, you might do it at the expense of... Actually, good experience. If you do the other thing, it might be super expensive. So, cost to collect on one end, and on the other end, honestly, you know, consumer NPS scores. Because at the end of the day, like that, like the patient is the person is the ultimate customer, and you know, like I said earlier, we spend five hundred billion dollars a year, and medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy. That's a pretty terrible <laughs> RY for us as a country. We need to get better. Senator
2: Frisk quoted some studies earlier. You know, there's a lot of academic rigor that's placed on actually measuring what the cost issues are with regards to administrative spend. Why not apply that same level of academic rigor to how we evaluate solutions in this space? We spend a ton of time evaluating clinical AI solutions, you know, with um, the highest bar possible, which is, you know, the FDA and getting them actually approved as medical devices or products. And yet the administrative universe, historically, we have not applied that level of rigor at all. And so, you know, I think that's another sort of interesting opportunity. The data is much more straightforward. We have claims. We have, you know, a lot of the challenges around measurement in clinical settings is that we try to use claims data as a proxy for what's happening clinically, but it falls very short. When you're applying claims data to evaluating billing processes, that's a very direct link and should give you far more precise sort of impact and measurement opportunities. So I think that's another sort of thing that I would love to see. In the industry, is you know upholding these solutions and vendors to the same level of rigor from sort of an evaluation perspective as we do in the clinical areas of medicine.
3: That's a very good point. I think we get a lot of vendors in healthcare, especially that talk about AI and ML and all of these different things, and they don't actually back it up with peer-reviewed publications. And to Julie's point, we really do that on the clinical side, and it's critical. And I, I honestly think it's one of the reasons that American medicine is the best in the world. The American healthcare system is really not because we don't apply that same level of rigor on the back office. And I hope we see more of that in the future.
1: That's an interesting idea. So, we're also obviously in a moment of enormous kind of shifts in regulation and policy, a lot of new changes around payment reform, including price transparency. What's your take on how both kind of how prepared? The providers and users in the system are right now for these changes, and what impact do you think they will have going forward, specifically on financial operations and what we've been talking about today?
4: The larger world, the policy world, does play a big role. There are two things that are important. It's the regulatory side, and it's the legislative side. And the regulatory side, we need to take the unnecessary red tape which requires in every hour spent in an emergency room delivering a care, a doctor has to spend an hour doing paperwork. It's crazy. So get that red tape out, the numbers of measures, the well-intended quality measures, process measures out there. A lot of progress can be made to free up if there's trusted technology that has all of the appropriate compliance and outcomes and achieves the purpose. The second is the legislative world, and it's important because a lot of the technology and the advances, especially when it comes to machine learning and artificial intelligence, is built on huge data and huge data sets that we know are out there. So it comes to how our federal government can support things like interoperability. It wasn't that long ago that we had a bipartisan bill, the 21st Century Cures Act, and it resulted in these 2020 interoperability and Patriot access rules. They gave patients better access to their medical information. We'll see how they play out, but it took that big policy change to set the macro environment. It required the large stakeholders to come to the table and to be more open. The regulatory and legislative policy needs to provide that enabling environment for the innovation and the creativity to come forward.
2: And by the way, I mean, it often goes sort of underappreciated that those very interoperability rules, patient data retrieval actually is a big source of cost in the revenue cycle, right? Because payers actually have to evaluate charts and you know actual patient medical history to make determinations about reimbursement and coverage. And so that has a direct impact there. To answer your question, Hannah, about you know, how prepared is the industry, I would say not very. This is where it does require both. Kind of wherewithal to you know again just fundamentally change a lot of the processes by which things are done today. As we make you know the changes from fee for service to value based care, as we get more consumer centric as a healthcare system, all of that is already underway. And the pandemic was very much a forcing function for people to double down on the streamlining of those types of activities. And so you know the ideal situation here would be that because the train has left the station, we already have momentum around those things. That it will be a requirement that. Sort of the incumbent providers and payers look to these innovative technology solutions to really just rebuild fundamental layers of our infrastructure in our healthcare system with the air cover of policy, right?
1: It's time to build again. It's time to build. That's wonderful. Thank you all so much for joining us on BioEats World. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.